You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. The Trek Files, Season 8, Episode 1, Writing to Series Budget, May 3rd, 1987. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Welcome back, Star Trek fans. Hey, especially all of you Trekophiles out there spelled with an F. We're so grateful that you're joining us here for the beginning of our eighth season. We've got a wonderful show, a great season opener for you. So look, you know the routine, unless you've forgotten. It hasn't been that long a hiatus. <laughs> Check out our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. As always, our documents of the week right out of Gene's files truly are there. We've got another great, great Star Trek era production guest to join us and talk about those documents. So look, here as usual is a little audio snippet of our documents, but you want to hang around and come right back and I'll be here with today's guest. We have now reached that point, and the time has come for us to address what it will mean with respect to the kind of show we can turn out on a weekly basis. While these notes will in no way address the individual story premises, they will definitely affect both content and what our audience will see. All right, Trekophiles. And yeah, you know, I am including all you canonistas. I'm including all of you great fans out there across the ways. You'll love today's guest. You'll love today's subject matter because we're talking about the nuts and bolts of Star Trek and even maybe across the eras as well. Because with us today to talk about budgets and hey, it's not it's not dreary numbers all the time because these numbers and these budgets and these memos wind up making the Star Trek that you enjoy on the screen. And I can think of, boy. No better person to talk about it with us today than the great David Livingston, longtime producer and director on all the eras of what we call bourbon Star Trek. David, thank you so much for joining us today on The Trek Files. Glad to be here. Thank you for the invite, Larry. Well, I, we've, we put a bundle of papers uh, this week, one of them just to show it's a memo from March. It's really a distribution list from March 1987. So Star Trek is not even the next generation is not even filming yet. The pilot's still being consolidated, but there you are on the distribution list. You were right there at a, at a lower level than you wound up, obviously. But t- can you remember, how did you, how did you get, were you a fan? Did you, were you just working in the industry and wound up at Paramount and working, working on the show? It was the latter. I was working over at ABC Circle Films, which is now defunct. And uh, uh, Michael Schoenbrunn, who was the head of television production, physical production of Paramount, uh, gave a call over to Sally Young, who was my boss at ABC, and saying that he was looking for a production manager for a pilot. And I went over and interviewed for it, and uh, it was Star Trek. I had not been a fan uh, of the show, uh, but I was certainly glad to uh, have the job. So you probably knew Star Trek was this industry cultural icon from before of some kind, but you were just it was just a job to you starting off. That's correct. I, I had seen, uh, I, I did watch uh, some of the series when I was a kid, and also I had seen uh, the Star Trek movie, and I'm a big Robert Wise fan, so 
um, I was taken with with that movie. Um, uh, I also saw, I guess, uh, uh, where they come to Earth. Uh, I think that was done. The one prior. with the whales. The one with the whales. I love that. <laughs> Star I Trek Four. Yeah, Star Trek Four was before '87, right? Right. It just uh, just before the yeah, year yeah. before. So I was I was a when I say I wasn't a fan, I wasn't a fan of the original series, but certainly I was a fan of uh, of uh, Star Trek Four. Um, uh, but again, I was glad to come and uh, work on the pilot. I had done a lot of pilots. I had worked at Universal um, and also at ABC Circle. And I guess that was sort of my calling card to uh, any pilot that I had worked on had gotten picked up uh, for production. And I think that was a sort of a cachet associated oh, with me. Oh, well, all, yes. All due to your cover. You know, and when we say work, we're talking about line producing, right? Um, production manager. There's a difference. Okay. A, a line producer is above the line, uh, meaning they get paid a lot more than the below the line people. But I was the production manager, which was responsible for preparing uh, the budget for the production as well as hiring the crew. Okay. But you eventually, you did cross that line and go into residuals and, and get above the line, right? I, well, I did. I did do that eventually. Yeah. Not, no residuals well, for producing though. Right. Oh, okay. Well, uh, even, even pennies, huh? I, uh, we, we put these documents together this week because on one hand, we've got uh, a, a great one that's the show getting off the ground, and it's that interface. <laughs> Back in the day, it was the Cooper building, heart building divide. <laughs> but here, it's, it's like, here's the production reality. This memo from Bob Justman, who you knew, um, the late, great Bob Justman, to Gene talking about, here's the reality. He and Rick are talking about what budgets will look like on the show. So we've gone from pie-in-the-sky potential, what, what can the writers come up with, to here's now what they've got to be limited to. And this is the kind of thing that, that you got to deal with in a varying degree. Starting off, you were just the record keeper and then eventually getting to make decisions. And then even on the director's side of things, <laughs> having, having the shoe on the other foot and having to ask for things or, you know, whatever. But all those ways that the real world limits what the storytelling can be. So I don't, you know, you, you look at this out of the gate and I guess the pattern budget for original series, Next, gener next Generation originally was a million and a half. Was that... Does that sound? You'd have to tell me. I, I don't remember the specific numbers. But what comes to mind when you see this original document where they're trying to get a handle on, you know, okay, it's time to stop dreaming and let's get real here? Yeah, uh, certainly for, for something like Star Trek, because it's a world that had to be created out of whole cloth each week. Um, you couldn't just go to a, a house in Pasadena and shoot because it was... In, out, in outer space and on a spaceship. So when you try to create a budget for something like that, it's, it's a bit of a crapshoot going in. And certainly the first season proved to be that case. Bob's memo uh, wanted to make everybody very aware that this was a particular uh, animal and that we had to be very careful on how we approached it so that we didn't get into uh, budget hell uh, halfway through the season. And I remember when I wrote The Next Generation Companion, there were times when, you know, e either people wanting to stretch the envelope and everybody being in agreement or unforeseen events happening where there would have to be some severe budget cuts all of a sudden, you know, and, and even at the 11th hour, somebody would have to go in and hack on a, I know DS9, everybody loves to talk about move along home. Uh, but there were bits of that show, that, the game, the Alan Moraine side of things, was supposed to be a much bigger... Yeah, That's just one off the top of my head. 
Yeah, I, w I was no longer on Deep Space Nine as a producer at that point, so I don't know that particular case. But in the first season of The Next Generation, we did have to play uh, budget juggling, um, particularly the, uh, the pattern budget for costumes was grossly uh, under, underestimated. And we had to go back to the studio in the middle of the season and ask for more money just to be able to put costumes onto people because it was such an outlier. Uh, and then in general, uh, we had to pare down uh, individual episodes or ask for simpler production. Uh, uh, we call them bottle shows in order to uh, get back on to pattern budget. We also in the first season on a on a show, uh, you have to amortize uh, certain uh, major costs. So all of the costs of building the interior sets of the enterprise uh, got amortized, which means that the pattern budget had to absorb some of those costs per episode. And that's that's a big burden for a first season show to have to uh, to have to uh, absorb. So Bob was uh, uh, clearly in his uh, rights to to point out to the writers and to Gene especially that that they had to be cognizant of that and not go pie in the sky in every episode. Well, it was. It was great to meet Bob Justman when I got to do the Next Generation Companion and, and start working on that because I had read about him as a kid, as a fan, this 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 thing of, you know, putting a script in his hand in the original series days and just weighing it and telling you how much to the penny it was going to be over budget as written. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah Bob, Bob was Bob was a great character. He hired me. Uh, he was the one who interviewed me originally, and I'll always be grateful uh, to him for that opportunity. Um, yeah, so he he did have that uh, ability, and again, that memo was was important to sort of define uh, to the writing staff what the what the parameters were of the show. But even then, uh, we were uh, over budget going into the last show of the season and had to do a, a bottle show. In fact, we actually had to do a clip show where right. where you not only have to keep everything to the minimum, uh, no guest actors or anything like that, but actually use clips from previous episodes to try and cobble together uh, an episode uh, to, to be able to make your uh, budget at the end of the season. And that, of course, is the infamous Shades of Grey. Yes. <laughs> Adios, Denise. Yeah. Well, that was, that was uh, Shades of Grey was into the second season. Oh. It was the clip show. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. And Denise was right. <laughs> okay, it's been a few. It's been a few years and a so, few hundred so episodes. Clip, so the clip show was the second season, <laughs> right? Okay. Right. Well, again, that the was second... that was Maury Hurley going out the door with a clip show. Okay, so that that's another indication that we were still having budget issues even going into the second season. Although I have to say that my job each season after the I did not prepare the pattern budget for the first season, but subsequent to that, I had to prepare the um the the, uh, uh, the the series budget and pair and every year that I was involved uh, I increased the budget and asked for more money and every year Paramount put up very little resistance to giving us the money uh, because they knew they knew that they knew what they had and we didn't have to deal with the network this was a uh, right. a, a very unique show in that it was syndicated by Paramount so Paramount owned everything and they knew that they were going to get the return on their investment, the ROI, and they were willing to acknowledge that science fiction was not 
the same kind of budget situation as uh, Starsky and Hutch or something like that, yeah. uh, where we had, again, we had to create everything uh, every week out of new and out of whole cloth. And, and as those seasons went by, you're talking about going back and pushing the budgets and getting a little more. Every year. <clears throat> Every year. I would think after season three and the best of both worlds exploded and, and the ratings just went insanely through the roof, that that got a little easier as time went on. If you were still uh, actively on that end of things. Yeah, I was um, all the way through the end of the series. Um, the, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I think I got one call over that whole process from t uh, Tim Isofano was the production exec. And I think he gave me one call about the budget and that was it. And that, that doesn't happen. At least it didn't happen in that era. I, do you I, remember what that was over? I, I do not remember, but I cut my uh, teeth on production manager to, uh, management at Universal and Universal Television uh, was infamous for lowering the boom and preventing you from starting a set because uh, you were over budget to the point where by the time they released the budget, you had no time to build a set and that's how they saved the money. I don't know if that makes sense, but bottom wow. line is <laughs> yeah. they put up as much resistance to you spending the money as possible. Uh, I died and went to heaven when I came to Star Trek because that was not the case uh, with Paramount. Paramount, in their wisdom, realized they had a cash cow and did not hold us back creatively, which meant that they were willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Well, I do remember there were some times <clears throat> uh, Herman Zimmerman at the beginning, and but really on Next Generation where where the some sets would be slightly reused. If there was like a big elaborate set, they'd find a way to, to like take it from another angle, like the, an outdoor building that was supposed to be like a town square or something. Herman was brilliant at that. Mm -hmm. uh, we had conversations all the time where Herman where we would talk about him, we called it revamping. We would revamp a set, and I defy anybody to know that it was the bones of the, the, of the previous set or the previous, previous uh, episode. Yeah. So Herman was, was brilliant at that. And I'm yeah. great taking respect things, for him. Taking things out of, uh, out of storage. Well, really quickly, we've got this other document that I love just because it's showing, and it is, it's post-production. Um, finished, which you weren't actively, I mean, your, your focus was up front and getting the live show shot, That's but it does, I, I it does show all the interaction of all the departments and how, how overlapping, like you'd have one series in prep or one episode in prep, one, one episode shooting and one in post and how all of that was kind of a maze keeping all that ticking. Yeah. I was the production side and, and Peter Lordson was the post-production side and we did not sort of cross-pollinate except when it came to onset visual effects, i.e. phaser fires mm -hmm. and, and visual effects that had to do on set. Then, then we had to communicate and I had to get a budget um, from either Rob Legato or Dan Curry uh, for those particular on set uh, elements. But Peter would prepare uh, a visual effects budget which came out of post out of his post-production budget. So he had his budget, I had mine, and they were combined into one series budget. And with, as much as that memo is something, the cover page with the distribution, just looking at all the names and the departments on and off the lot that needed to know what the post-production schedule was. 
Yeah, you know. Yeah, everybody yeah. needed to know what was going on, and they needed to know when Peter was going to deliver the show, and and what the what the cost ramifications were. Oh, David, David, this is so much. Uh, it's so much a flavor. I really could you come back? I just there's so many aspects of Star Trek that you were involved with, and also were there over the long haul. I'd love it if you could uh, come back and join us again sometime. Would be glad to, Larry. Great talking to you. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. All documents and your chance to comment are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynemachek.com. And that is where you can link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.